I lived in Columbus, Ohio for about five years after I graduated from Bible college. Uh, during that time, I worked for an insurance company and also a high-tech firm, but I was also a student at The Ohio State University. And because of that, I uh, lived with seven other guys in an old house that was located just a block or so north of the campus. Well, one evening, the phone rang, and the person on the other end identified himself as being a police officer. And he informed me that one of my roommates had been involved in an accident. And he was wondering if I would come down to the hospital in downtown Columbus and go visit him. Apparently, my roommate had been riding his bike home from work at 2 o'clock in the morning. A car that was headed straight down to the downtown area took a sudden turn on a side street. My roommate had been in one of those bike lanes that runs parallel with that main road. And so when the guy turned, he turned right into him. My roommate flew off his bike and basically landed on his face. And so when I heard what happened, I quickly got dressed and I drove downtown and went to visit my friend. I was thankful to find out he was doing okay, but his nose was about as twice the size it normally was, and he had a tooth that was missing, and so he kind of looked like that character that is on the front of the magazine called Mad, Mad Magazine. After visiting with him for a little bit and making sure he was okay, I headed back home. By now, it was about four o'clock in the morning. And as I was driving home, I became aware of something that I had not noticed when I was heading to the hospital. I think when I was heading to the hospital, I was just concerned about my roommate, but coming back, I was just kind of driving back casually, and I happened to notice the hundreds, if not thousands of people that were out and about at four o'clock in the morning. The main street and all the side streets were just filled with activity. There were people everywhere talking, people were yelling. I imagine there were some fights going on. Uh, I just couldn't believe it. Uh, I was not part of the nightlife in Columbus. I wasn't into partying or going to the bars. And so I just had no idea what took place at night in Columbus, especially in the middle of the week. And a thought occurred to me as I was driving by all this activity. I'm not sure why, but this thought popped into my mind. I wondered how many of those were going to do something that night that they would regret for the rest of their lives. I wondered how many of the group that I had just passed would do something that would negatively impact their future. You know, oftentimes things happen in the night that aren't good. Oftentimes the nighttime provides a shadow for certain things to take place. I would argue that most of the bad things or negative things that happen in a community like Columbus or even Morgantown, West Virginia, happen at night, not during the day. I do know that certain things happen during the day. But the nighttime oftentimes is worse. People do things in the shadow of darkness. Years ago, we had someone in the church who, for a living, did autopsies. And he did autopsies of people who had been stabbed or shot or or beaten or whatever, he, he was supposed to determine the cause of their death. And one day the two of us were talking and he mentioned to me that if you read the newspaper, you'd get the impression that in Morgantown, West Virginia, there was just a lot of crime and that it was a dangerous place to be. But he said, in my work, I've discovered that almost 100% of the cases I deal with are cases of incidents that took place at night. 
He said people were doing things they shouldn't have been doing with people they should not have been doing them with and it was taking place at a time when most people should be sleeping. And then he made this point, nothing good ever happens in the middle of the night. And I suspect he's probably right. Evil tends to reign at night. People tend to commit crimes more at night in the shadow of darkness. Even when we're young, we discover that we're kind of afraid of the dark. We prefer, of course, the daylight. And I've found even in the present day that if I wake up in the middle of the night and I begin to think about things that are a concern for me, that at nighttime, those concerns are doubly bad. During the nighttime, I, have, I think the weight of those things is twice as heavy. But when the sun rises in the morning, I see all those things through a different light. Today we're going to begin a new series that's titled Out of the Shadows. It's a series about the stories leading up to the Easter story. Now I consider the Easter story to be the most wonderful story ever told. A true story where Jesus Christ rose again from the dead and made it possible for us to have eternal life. But there are a lot of stories surrounding that story. And what's interesting about those other stories is that most of them happen at night or in the darkness. For example, we find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying at night on the night that he was arrested. It was during the nighttime that the disciples fled from Jesus. Peter denied even knowing Jesus three times during the night. He was up all night, it seems, with a group of people standing by the fire. Three times he said, I don't even know Jesus, and then the rooster crowed, and so you realize he was there really all night until the early morning. What's interesting is during the daytime, he pledged his allegiance to Christ, but something happens at night. Jesus' trial took place at night, although it was illegal for it to do so at the time of Christ. And although Jesus was crucified during the daytime, there was a period of time as he hung on the cross where darkness, where darkness hung over the world. In Luke 23, verses 44 and 45, we read, it was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three, because the, the sun's light failed. This indicates that it wasn't because it was a cloudy day that things were dark or that there was an eclipse. It says for that three-hour period of time, the sun's light failed. And when it says darkness came over the whole land, the word land there can also be translated earth. It's possible that this was a three-hour darkness that came over the whole world. And what was happening in a physical sense, of course, was mirroring what was happening in a spiritual sense. How scary that must have been. And it may have looked like evil was winning. In fact, with each of these stories that I want to look at the next few weeks, it may look like evil is winning. But in the midst of the stories, we see some glimpses of light. Looking at the stories, it would look like darkness had won. It would look like hope had lost. It would look like the enemy had prevailed. But that's really not what took place. And oftentimes, like with the resurrection after the night, suddenly the sun shines out and a new day is born. Now, we live in, I think, some kind of dark times with this COVID-19. I'm 60 years old. I personally have never experienced anything quite like this. I understand that the last time something like this happened 
where people were told, stay at home, quarantine yourselves, don't go out, was in the year 1918 with the Spanish flu. And so none of us were probably alive when that happened. And yet, even in the midst of this dark time, I think there's some light. Today, specifically, I want to talk about the story of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And though it was dark when he was arrested, there were some positive things that happened. And I want to make the point that there were actually some opportunities that Jesus had that night, and there are opportunities we have, especially when things are dark. The first opportunity that I think we have, and Jesus had as well, was the opportunity to connect with one another in a deeper way. There is something about difficult times and hard times that breaks down the barriers and suddenly we find ourselves wanting to help other people. There are a lot of people, of course, during this time that can't reach out to other people or connect with others in a physical sense, but we can connect in other ways as well. But it's a time to connect with other people. Our story that I'd like to look at here today is found in Matthew chapter 26. And we're gonna begin looking in verse 36. So it's Matthew 26 and verse 36, if you wanna follow along in your Bible. Let me set the context, though. The Passover meal had just taken place. Jesus had been with his 12 disciples in an upper room. They celebrated this Seder meal, celebrating the Passover. And at some point during the meal, Jesus had dismissed Judas to go and betray him. And so Jesus was now just with the 11 of his disciples, and we read that they made their way to this Garden of Gethsemane. Let's read about it, beginning in verse 36. Where we read, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he told the disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. Taking along Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is swallowed up in sorrow to the point of death. Remain here and stay with me. Going a little farther, he fell face down and prayed, My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Now let me stop for a moment again. The, the, it was nighttime, which was the way it was in a physical sense, but I think also a spiritual sense. But I think the setting at night is very significant to the story. They were going to a place called Gethsemane. The word Gethsemane means oil press, or, or oil, olive oil press. And it was indicative of, of course, what Jesus was gonna endure for us. He was gonna be crushed for us. His blood was going to be spilled for us. Jesus chose this occasion, though, to go to the garden and pray. Evidence has it, by the way, that this garden was likely where Jesus was an enclosed area probably was stone, and many have suggested that there was probably a disciple of his who was wealthier and had given Jesus and his disciples permission to use this garden area anytime they wanted. And so Jesus often went up to this place. This is why Judas knew where it was when he came to betray Jesus. But they went up to pray. Now, Jesus did not go alone, and this is where we get to my first point. We read that initially, Jesus, of course, brought all 11 of the disciples up with him. Judas was gone. But when it came time to pray, we read this interesting detail, that Judas, I'm sorry, Jesus decided to bring with him 
three of his closest friends, three of the disciples with whom he was the most close. They were Peter, James, and John. And the three plus Jesus went a little further to pray. Now, when Jesus, of course, went to pray, he went off by himself, but I think he was just a stone's throw away. Why is that significant? I think Jesus wanted to share this moment with them. Difficult times often unite our hearts together. Jesus did not want to face this thing by himself. And for us, dark times, I think, provide an opportunity to connect with one another in a deeper way. Mark chapter 14, verses 33 and 44, tell how Jesus was feeling at the point he was in the garden. In Mark 14, 34, we read, he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and horrified. Then he said to them, my soul is swallowed up in sorrow to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. I see how Jesus was so open with his disciples about what he was going through. I think he needed their company. The words that are used to describe how he felt, it says he was deeply distressed. He was horrified. It implies this, just almost a terror in his heart. And then it goes on to say, my soul is swallowed up in sorrow to the point of death. It's like sorrow is this monster that's swallowing up his entire soul. And while he was going through this, he wanted them to be with him. This is very significant. I think sometimes we minimize what Jesus' suffering was like. I think sometimes we think, well, Jesus was God, and so this was easy for him. There wasn't a real struggle for him. I see Jesus saying, I can't do this alone. I need to have you guys with me. I want you to understand what I am going through. This is really, really difficult. A scholar by the name of Barbiera put it this way. He was experiencing sorrow and trouble such as he had never known in his earthly life. He asked the three disciples to stay and keep watch with him. In this hour of his greatest need, the Lord wanted those with a sympathetic understanding to be praying with him. Now, if you keep reading the story, you'll discover that these guys were not maybe the best, or at least implies they weren't the best at comforting him because they kept going asleep when he said to them repeatedly, stay awake and pray. We pick up the story in verse 40 of Matthew 26, where we read, then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He asked Peter, so couldn't you stay awake with me one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came again and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. After leaving them, he went away again and prayed a third time, saying the same thing. And if you keep reading, you'll see that when he came back a third time, they were sleeping once again. Now, we can be hard on the disciples because Jesus was calling them to himself, I think, for comfort. And yet, it seems like they let him down, which, by the way, this often happens when we invite in other people into our suffering. Many times, people will disappoint us, sometimes in the things they say. 
Oftentimes, for example, I've known at funerals, people say the wrong thing to someone who's lost a loved one. It's not intentional. They're not trying to be hurtful, but oftentimes, if we invite others into our suffering, we'll find that, that sometimes they'll let us down. In the case of the disciples, though, I think there's a reason they kept falling asleep. And it really speaks to how much they entered into Jesus' suffering. Because there's a detail found in Luke 22 and verse 45 that I never noticed before this past week. In Luke 22:45, we read, when he got up from prayer and came to the disciples, he found them sleeping, and then it says, exhausted from their grief. The reason they were so worn out is that they were filled with sorrow. And I don't think that they had sorrow for themselves. It wasn't they were grieving for themselves. I think Jesus had expressed what was going to happen. The disciples, of course, did not fully understand what Jesus was about to go through. They just could not digest the fact that he was soon going to die. But they knew that this was something that was weighing him down, something with which he was suffering deeply, and Jesus had invited them to enter in, and they also became sorrowful. You know, in the New Testament, we read, we should weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And so I look at these guys, and I see, yes, they were tired and they fell asleep, but they had really entered into Jesus' suffering. Darkness of night often provides an opportunity to connect with others in a, a deeper way. Now, I, I know, again, that in what we're facing right now in this dark time, that physically we're discouraged from being with one another, but that doesn't mean we can't connect. And I love the fact that we have the technology now to connect in, in new and interesting ways. Here at the church, we're even connecting, our community groups are connecting online. They're doing Zoom calls and other things. We can connect with other people in other ways, through notes or through phone calls. As uh, Josh was talking about earlier, that this weekend, use that opportunity to serve others by praying for them or calling somebody, encouraging someone. This is a time where we have an opportunity to really make a difference in someone else's life, an opportunity to serve them during this time. There was a second opportunity, though, that the dark situation Jesus faced provided, and we have this same opportunity. It's an opportunity to trust God in the midst of the darkness. It's an opportunity to trust God in the middle of what we're going through. I think for most of us, we go through life and we do not have a lot of opportunities to trust God. It's not that we don't need to trust God. I think we need to be trusting him all the time. But I think we go through life and when things are going well, when our needs are being taken care of, when everything is fine, I think we find ourselves not desperate for God. And then something happens. And when this difficulty happens, we find ourselves on our knees. I think what happened after 9-11 of how many people started coming back to church. I remember here at Chestnut Ridge, the Sunday after 9-11, it was the largest Sunday we had had for months and months and months. Probably the largest of any Sunday apart from Easter or Christmas. And I also know that on that particular weekend, some people I know personally put their faith in Christ. And oftentimes difficulties provide an opportunity for us to turn to God. Jesus, in the midst of this situation, was trusting in his heavenly Father. We continue the story in Matthew 26, 39, where we see the nature of Jesus' prayer. 
in the Garden of Gethsemane. We read, going a little farther, he fell face down and prayed, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Skipping to verse 42. Again, a second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And then again in verse 44, after leaving them, he went away again and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. From Jesus' example here, we learn a few things about prayer. First of all, it shows me that it is okay to pray for the things we want. It's okay to pray for things that we want. Jesus knew, I believe, that the answer he was going to get from his father was going to be no. But that did not keep him from putting out the request, Lord, if there's any way to take this from me, Lord, I do not want to go through this. This is going to be very, very difficult. Remove this from me, but not my will, but yours be done. I've had people tell me before that you should never pray for something you want. You know, you can pray for other people. You should never pray for yourself. But this is not what's taught in the pages of the Bible. It's okay to pray for the things that we want. I've had other people who have said, well, it's okay to pray for what you, you need, but not what you want. And again, that's not true. The illustration that comes to mind with that is when I'm with my kids and they want something like an ice cream cone. I've never told my kids how dare you ask me for something that you just want, like an ice cream cone? You're only allowed to ask me for things you need. If I, as, a heavenly, or as an earthly father, would do that for my kids, I, it brings me joy to give them the things that I know that they, they desire, the things that they want. How much more would our heavenly father do the same? It's okay to pray for the things that we, we want. Specifically, Jesus was asking for the cup to be removed. Now, that's kind of interesting terminology. A scholar by the name of Morris explains it this way. In the Old Testament, the cup has associations of suffering and of the wrath of God. Jesus' death meant suffering, and because it was a death for sin, there are associations of the wrath of God connected to it. The death he faced was a horrible death, and he experienced the natural human shrinking from undergoing such an ordeal. So he prayed that if it were possible, it might be avoided. Jesus was asking, is there another way? I think Jesus wanted the sins of the world to be taken care of. He wanted to provide for that. But he wondered, is there any other way? Lord, I just put my request before you. But this gets me to my second point, the faith that Jesus demonstrated here. Because his prayer was, this is what I want but I trust you with what you want. Three times he said, this is what I want, but not my will. I want yours to be done. And he was handing it over to God. And this is very, very significant when we pray, to trust God with the outcome, even if it is not what we're asking for. You see, sometimes God says no. I've had people again over the years that have said things along the lines of, if someone is not healed or if they do not get what they're asking God for, it's a failure of faith. I would like to suggest it actually is just the opposite. It requires more faith to trust God when his answer is no. When God says no to something and we say, I'll still trust you. 
Jesus never lacked faith in his Father's ability to answer his request. He trusted God, and when it comes to prayer, our faith is not in the request itself. Our faith is to be rooted in and anchored in a God who's able to answer our prayers. Later in Matthew 26, Jesus said these words. He said, or do you think I cannot call on my Father and he will provide me at once with more than 12 legions of angels? My study Bible indicates a legion with 6,000 soldiers He's saying, don't you realize that I could ask my father and he'd send 72,000 angels to come and deliver me? Jesus knew all along that God was able, but he wanted God's will, not his own. He said, this is what I desire, but I'm gonna trust your will to be done because I know you know what's best. I will trust you with the outcome. If you say no, I will trust you with that. And this is how I think we ought to pray. We recognize that our God is sovereign. And we recognize that our God can do anything. And we put our trust in him regardless of the outcome. A third thing I want to notice about Jesus' prayer, though, here, is that he said the same prayer three times. Now, I find that kind of interesting because God the Father already knew what he wanted. And then Jesus, of course, prayed it out loud. And so he already said it. And so why on earth did he need to repeat it three times. Why not just say it once? In fact, praying it three times, isn't that a lack of faith? And the answer is no. I'm reminded how Jesus taught us to pray. He said, I want you to keep on asking, keep on knocking, keep on seeking, because the one who asks and keeps asking receives. The one who knocks, the door will eventually be open. The one who seeks and continually seeks will eventually find. And then Jesus gave this parable about this this woman that was seeking justice from a judge. And she was banging on the door of the judge. And the judge did not care for the woman at all. But we read in the parable that because she kept on knocking, he finally opened the door and said, I'll give you justice. In fact, he said, I'm going to give you justice not because I care about you, but because you're pestering me. Now, Jesus was not suggesting at all that we pester him with our requests. But he was making the point that if an unjust judge will eventually give in to someone who keeps knocking, how much more will a judge who is loving, a God who cares, a father that loves his children, give us the things we ask for if we keep knocking? But why do we have to keep knocking? I think it reveals our heart. I think the, the thing that moves the heart of God when we pray is, is the burden in our own heart. Sometimes someone will ask us to pray for some, something for them, and, and we'll say, sure, I'll pray, and then we pray once, and then we forget about it. God hears those prayers, I'm sure, but I don't think they have the same effect as when something is a burden on our heart and we keep coming to God with the same request. We say, God, you know this is a burden on my heart. I'm praying for my family. I'm praying for this. I'm praying for that. Those are the kind of prayers that move the heart of God. Those are the kinds of prayers that indicate we're serious about prayer. We're serious about the request, and we bring it back to God. And so we keep on asking, keep seeking. We keep knocking. And so it's okay to pray for what we want. It's it's good to trust him with the results and to keep on praying. 
But let's continue our story with one third opportunity that this darkness provided. It was an opportunity first to, to connect with others in a deeper way, second to trust God in the midst of the darkness, and then finally, it provides an opportunity to display the light of Christ in the darkness. During difficult times, there are always people that will take advantage of the difficult time to enrich themselves. Or in the midst of that, their selfishness will be revealed. And so they go to the grocery store and they hoard everything. And, and they're thinking only about themselves and they're not thinking about other people. There are others during a time like this who are interested in others and care about the needs of other people and realize that this is an opportunity to meet a need. And this is how I think Jesus was. During this story, Jesus met a very specific need. And we have opportunities in the dark to do the same. Remember how Jesus said, let your light shine before people in such a way that they may see your good deeds and then glorify your Father in heaven. The darker it is, the brighter our light could shine in terms of doing good deeds that will make a difference in people's lives. Let's continue reading the story in Matthew 26 and verse 45, where we read, then he came to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the time is near. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let's go. See, my betrayer is near. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, suddenly arrived. A large mob with swords and clubs was with him from the chief priests and elders of the people. His betrayer had given them a sign, the one I kiss, he's the one, arrest him. So he went right up to Jesus and said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. Friend, Jesus asked him, why have you come? Then they came up, took hold of Jesus, and arrested him. At that moment, one of those with Jesus reached out his hand and drew his sword. He struck the high priest's slave and cut off his ear. Then Jesus told him, put your sword back in its place because all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. I don't know what image comes to your mind when you think of Jesus being arrested. Usually I think in my mind, I think of a group of 10 or 20 people coming to arrest him. But the word that's used in some of the Gospels to describe the group is a word cohort or company. And it refers to a group of about 600 people. Now, we don't know if a full core cohort was there. But the scene was more likely when they arrested Jesus, there were hundreds there. And so they come to arrest him. And of course, Jesus, Jesus is kissed by Judas, which was the agreed upon sign. And he was arrested. Now, I love a detail that's included in the story in John 18, beginning in verse 4, where we read, Then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, went out and said to them, Who is it you're looking for? Jesus the Nazarene, they answered. I am he, Jesus told them. Judas, who betrayed him, was also standing with them. When he told them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. A better translation of what Jesus said here is not I am he, but I am. And I think most conservative scholars agree that that phrase Jesus used in that moment was to declare that he was the I am of the Old Testament. You see, I am was the Old Testament name for God. It was the word Yahweh, I am that I am. And so Jesus says, I am. And in that moment, it says everybody fell down. In that moment, 
in that darkness, the glory of Jesus shone for just a moment. And in that moment, by the way, I think there's a lesson. It shows that despite the darkness, Jesus was in charge. This was not something that was just happening to him. In fact, John wrote, Jesus knowing ahead of time what was going to happen. And then he said, I am. And they all fell down. And it demonstrates that Jesus is there in the midst of the darkness, and he is there for us as well. But Luke adds a detail to this story that relates to my third point, the opportunity that we have to be a light in this darkness. In Luke 22 and verse 50, we read, then one of them struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. But Jesus responded no more of this, and touching his ear, he healed him. In his zeal, of course, Peter was the one who cut off this, this slave's ear, and undoubtedly, Peter was going for the whole head. He just wasn't very good with his aim. But Jesus, who could have been consumed in that moment, who could have said, well, this is it, and darkness should reign, he took the moment to reach out and show compassion and show love and to provide healing for that person. And often, this is what we're faced with in dark times. There are opportunities for us to show healing, to reach out to other people, that oftentimes in the darkness, our light can shine in a greater way. Now, this point in the story, we read that Jesus was arrested and his disciples all fled. And next week, I want to pick up the story. But let's, let's get some applications here for us this morning. First of all, I think we're living in opportune times. And I think we do have opportunities to connect with one another in a deeper way, but it may take more creativity. It may take reaching out more. It may take more phone calls. It may take connecting as groups online. It may take other ways in which we can connect with other people. But there are opportunities to connect, and I think we need to take advantage of them. Second, it's an opportunity for us to trust God in the midst of it, an opportunity for us to grow stronger in faith, to say, despite what's happening, I will not give in to fear. I recognize my God is in control. And also, during this time, I think it's an opportunity, as many of us are locked home, to be reading our Bibles more and to be praying more. This could be a season where we can be growing in our faith and growing in our love for God and growing in our trust in Him. And then finally, I think it's an opportunity for us to display the light of Christ in the darkness. Again, take advantage of this serve weekend, this Saturday, or other opportunities where we have to provide for the needs of other people. There are opportunities out there. I encourage you to keep your eyes open because during this dark time, we can be a light. And the reason we, of course, want to do all these things is because we have a world that doesn't have Jesus, and they don't have the hope that we have. And they may not have the joy or the faith that we have, and we have an opportunity in the darkest times to be a real light in the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you that even when things look dark, you are the light. And Lord, you can overcome any of the dark situations we're facing. And we're thankful we can look to you. And we do ask you to see the opportunities that we have before us during this season. I also ask you, Lord, this morning, if there are any that have not come to a place where they put their trust in Jesus Christ to be their Savior, they do so today. That they'd recognize their need for a Savior, realize, realizing that they've sinned against you, they've blown it, and they can't fix it. And they'd reach out to Jesus Christ who died in our place and for our sin. 
We thank you, Lord, for the promise we have in John 3.16 that you so love the world in this way, you sent your only Son that whoever believes in him, whoever puts their trust in him, will not perish but have eternal life. And may many, O oh Lord, trust you today that in the midst of the darkness they'd find the light of the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.